We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. We're going to continue our scripture reading in Ezekiel. If you would turn there, Ezekiel chapter 20. And we paused mid-chapter last time because it was a fairly lengthy chapter, so we wanted to come back to it. Ezekiel 20, starting in verse 27. Therefore, son of man, speak to the house of Israel and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Is this too your father? In this too, sorry, your fathers have blasphemed me by being unfaithful to me. When I brought them into the land concerning which I had raised my hand in an oath to give them, and they saw all the high hills and all the thick trees, there they offered their sacrifices and provoked me with their offerings. There they also sent up their sweet aroma and poured out their drink offerings. Then I said to them, What is this high place to which you go? So its name is called Bama to this day. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, Are you defiling yourselves in the manner of your fathers who committed and committing harlotry according to their abominations? For when you offer your gifts and make your sons pass through the fire, you defile yourselves with all your idols, even to this day. So shall I be inquired of by you, O house of Israel? As I live, says the Lord God, I will not be inquired of by you. What you have in your mind shall never be when you say, We will be like the Gentiles, like the families in all other countries, serving wood and stone. As I live, says the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm, and with fury poured out, I will rule over you. I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you out from the countries where you are scattered with a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm, and with fury poured out. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples, and there I will plead my case with you face to face. Just as I pleaded my case with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so I will plead my case with you, says the Lord God. You see, God's not going to allow his people, Israel, to continue in idolatry forever. He will force them, force their hand, as it were, to come back to what they should be doing. Verse 37, I will make you pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. Now, he's speaking about the new covenant here, that time in which he makes the new covenant with them and seals it with the nation of Israel. That is a future time yet. Uh, he has established the basis of the new covenant in what? work of Christ, but he has not made the new covenant with the nation of Israel yet in the sense of having an, a face-to-face, -face, if you will, interaction with them and uh, getting their agreement to enter into that covenant. And, but in the process of getting ready for this, he's going to pass them under the rod, and they knew what this meant. This was, as a shepherd does, passing a sheep and directing the good ones in one direction and the bad ones in another direction. He says, I will purge the rebels from among you 
and those who transgress against me. I will bring them out of the country where they dwell, that is, out of the dispersion, but they shall not enter the land of Israel. That's a very ominous word there, my friends. Thus you will know that I am the Lord. Verse 39, as for you, O house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, go, serve every one of you as idols, and and hereafter if you will not obey me, but profane my holy name no more with your gifts and your idols. Now what the Lord is doing there is not saying really to go serve idols. What he's saying is don't associate those idols with my name. If you're going to do that, leave me out of it. Verse 40, for on my holy mountain, on the mountain height of Israel, says the Lord God, there all the house of Israel, all of them in the land shall serve me. There I will accept them, and there I will require your offerings and the first fruits of your sacrifices together with all your holy things. I will accept you as a sweet aroma when I bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you have been scattered and I will be hallowed in you before the Gentiles. Then you shall know that I am the Lord, and I bring you into the land of Israel, into the country for which I raised my hand in an oath to give to your fathers. And there you shall remember your ways and all your doings which you, with which you were defiled, and you shall loathe yourselves in your own sight because of all the evils that you have committed. Then you shall know that I am the Lord, when I have dealt with you for my name's sake, Not according to your wicked ways, nor according to your corrupt doings, O house of Israel, says the Lord God. Furthermore, the word of the Lord came to me, that is to Ezekiel, saying, Son of man, set your face toward the south. Preach against the south and prophesy against the forest land, the south, and say to the forest of the south, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will kindle a fire in you, and it shall devour every green tree and every dry tree in you. The blazing flame shall not be quenched, and all faces from the south to the north shall be scorched by it. All flesh shall see that I, the Lord, have kindled it. It shall not be quenched. And I said, Ah, Lord God, they say of me, does he not speak parables? Ah, so now we get to the parables. That'll be for tonight, Matthew chapter 13. Amen. Naomi, would you come and share with us your ministry?
God's love aright. She bore to man a Savior when half spent was the night. This flower was with glorious splendor the darkness everywhere true man yet very God from sin and death he Let's turn our Bibles, if you would please, to Philippians chapter 2. This is not the typical birth narrative uh, section of Scripture that you might think that we would share uh, the week before or the week right after Christmas, but it is theologically rich and very connected to what we're looking at today. If you're visiting with us today, I just want to say a word of welcome. Thank you for coming. appreciate you being here, and uh, we enjoy getting to meet you and uh, share the word with you. And if you have any questions at all about what I say today, don't hesitate to ask me. I'll be back at the door greeting afterwards, and I'd like to meet you if I haven't already and and take any questions that you might have uh, about these matters today. We want to make sure that uh, the word of God as we share it, as we teach it, is clear and uh, understood to the best of our ability this morning Uh, There is a bulletin on the back table there next to this sidewall. If you want to grab one of those in there is a set of notes that is the very notes that I'm using to preach from. So what you see there is what you get, and I hope that you will uh, take advantage of those. Of course, those are also available on the church website, uh, both for this morning, earlier, the service earlier this morning, plus this one and the one for tonight. Uh, They are there for you. title of our message this morning is The Exaltation. Of Christ, the exaltation of Christ. Last week we pondered the doctrine of the incarnation, the as it's called, infleshment of Jesus Christ, in which we, in which He rather took to His divine person a nature and uh, a, a human nature at that. In so doing, He left the glorious place of the open manifestation of His deity, heaven at the right hand of God, left there beside the Father and came down to humanity. But he didn't just come down to humanity in some exalted form like a a king or a man with a halo over his head that everybody recognized as who he really was, but he he came not as a great king or a priest, but rather as a slave and subjected to the most torturous form of death, at least officially, that was used at that time. If And we argued that if he did that, if he did that, then we should be able to be humble 
as well. And so we taught the virtue of humility through the example of the Lord Jesus Christ, and not just his example, but his actual doing of the lowering of himself from from his open place of exaltation down to the status of a bond slave, really a slave, uh, more than a servant, and to give himself even to death and even the death on a cross. And so we saw that the Apostle Paul was exhorting the believers in Philippi to remove from themselves selfish ambition and conceit from their motives. How much of what we do is motivated by selfish ambition? I want this, and I want to accomplish that, and I, 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 instead of what we might say instead like, what could I do for God? What could I do for others? What could God use me to do in this world? And so instead, they, the, the Philippians and we are to humbly treat others as better than ourselves and to watch out for the interests of others. That's in Philippians 2, uh, verses 3 and 4. And all of that would propel them toward the goal of being of one accord and one mind. Look at verse 2 of Philippians 2. He says, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. The cause of strife in churches and families and societies and communities is that people are not of a humble mind and thus not of one mind where they are in agreement with one another, sharing in love and considering others better than themselves. And so we need, too, to work very diligently at this by God's grace and through trusting in Him at putting aside our selfish ambitions and our pride and exercising true humility and concern for others. Now we turn, and that was really from verses 5 through 8 as they connected to verses 1 to 4, but now we move into verses 9 through 11. And this does not have specifically to do with the lesson of humility, we will see. There was a trait for us to, to uh, emulate last time, but there's not such a trait today because the text tells us about the exaltation of Jesus Christ. And instead of a trait to emulate, there is a person to worship, a person to worship. Philippians 2, 9 to 11 says this, therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're called to worship Christ so as to honor the Father. If you do not honor the Son, you do not honor the Father. Let me just say that very clearly. There are people out there who think that, well, I believe in God and I worship God and I'm okay with God and all that, but they reject Jesus. If you reject Jesus, you've rejected the one who sent him. That's what the scriptures teach. Don't deceive yourselves. Don't allow yourselves to be deceived. If you don't honor the Son, you don't honor the Father. We'll come back to that thought uh, some point by the end of our message. I want to first speak about the relationship of Christ's humiliation to his exaltation. That's the pattern that you see here. Remember, 
We took those steps down from heaven to humanity, to servanthood, to the death on the cross. But now the text says God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name that Jesus every knee would bow. And so you see that he's stepped down in his humiliation, his humbleness as a model for us indeed, but more than a model. Is actually in doing that, he accomplished the substitution for our sins on the cross, dying in, in the place of sinners who would receive him. But now the text tells us that he is exalted again. So verse 9 begins with, therefore. It describes how God exalted Jesus above everything and everyone. The idea is that because Jesus had a humble mind and he suffered that greatly, God in turn exalted him. And there is a direct connection here between humiliation and exaltation. The Bible says, he who humbles himself will be exalted. And he who exalts himself will be humbled. And several passages I've listed there for time's sake, I won't go to all of those, but 1 Peter 5, 6, for example, commands us to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt us in due time. My friends, you have a problem with humility. Don't get mad at me because that'll just be an evidence of the problem. (laughs) Don't get upset. You and I have a problem with humility. And before exaltation has to come humility. The Lord Jesus said, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. We sit here and we say, in a lot of ways, I'm here to be served. People ought to serve me. You know, I'm entitled. Jesus' mindset was not that. He humbled himself from great height to great depth. And this led him, this mindset led him to act as we read in verses 5 through 8. And then he received the exaltation after that. So the Lord is commending this mindset to us and sharing the pathway to glory comes through suffering. Uh, Luke 24, 26. It behooved the Son of Man to suffer and then to enter into His glory. Hebrews 2, 9 and 10. He suffered a death for every man and then He's exalted uh, Romans 8.18, we, we look at the, the weight of suffering that we experience and we count it unworthy of the, of the weight of glory that we shall experience later on. And First Peter has a lot to say about this as well in chapter 4 and chapter 5 of his letter. He talks to the believers and says, After you have suffered a while, the Lord establish and strengthen and perfect you. So the pattern in Scripture is always the suffering followed by the glory. It's an unpleasant, perhaps, pattern to have to think about, but if you are to be glorified, you will go through humility. You, there's, no, there's no other doorway to exaltation than to suffering, sometimes persecution, sometimes physical suffering, sometimes disgrace and shame, sometimes at the hand of family, Uh, at the the hands of the government, whatever way that God has ordained in your particular case, 
Selfish ambition is sin and leads to punishment. Selfless ambition, motivated for the glory of God, is holy and leads to reward from God and exaltation. The same was the case in the life of Christ. He left footsteps for us to follow. You know that? And what do those footsteps look like? Well, the prophets of old said the sufferings of Christ and the glory that would follow. And they didn't quite understand how those two things fit together, but we understand, don't we? The sufferings of Christ, therefore God has highly exalted him. The sufferings of Christ so that you could have eternal life and then Christ exalted, raised from the dead so that he would raise us also from the dead and share in that eternal life and glory with him. Now look at verse number 9 again. We're going to look at how did God glorify Jesus, the way that he did it. It's in verse 9. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. And so first you have the simple statement of the fact that God raised up Jesus, not merely in physical resurrection, but raised him up, exalted him, gave him a place of honor and glory. That is, he reversed the humiliation, the lowering that Jesus did to save us, God undid by giving glory to Jesus. Now, God did not undo the incarnation per se. Let's make sure we understand. Merely the the fact that Christ added humanity to his divine nature, that is not uh, humiliating because God in creation, in creating humanity, didn't create a, uh, a humiliating thing. Humanity is the crowning achievement of God's creation. We see that in Genesis chapter 1 on day 6, after he created everything else. Finally, he created man. And, and the text tells us male and female he created them. Eventually, it was male first and then female. And then he told them to be fruitful and multiply, to have dominion over the, the earth and the birds of the air and the fish in the sea and all of that. They were commanded to have that kind of stewardship dominion over the creation. Humanity is the pinnacle of God's creation. So just because Jesus came in incarnate form is not something that has to be removed for him to be exalted. Okay, Jesus is still enfleshed right now in heaven and totally glorified, and he will remain that way for all of eternity. So sometimes I, I imagine that people think, you know, Jesus came as, a, as a, a boy and grew up to be a man, and he's the God-man, and then when he died and he left and he went back to heaven, he went back exactly the way that he was before. No, he went more than he was before. He went to a higher level of glory, a level of glory in which he combines the divine and the human in a way which demonstrated to the Father that here is a man who lived perfectly, kept your law, did everything you asked of him, uh, and he will come back and he will rule over the world in that same humanity. Now, how does he look today? How does he look? Well, we get a glimpse of it in the Mount of Transfiguration. Just for a little moment of time, the Lord is glorified, and the kind of robe of, that was hiding his glory was was uh, opened so that the disciples could see that he was, in fact, the coming king. Or think about how he appeared after the resurrection. 
You know, the ladies who saw him first, kind of like, you know, to check their eyes and make sure, am I seeing this person rightly? Uh, there's something different about him after he's resurrected and, and, and new. And, and then, of course, if you think about the book of Revelation, Revelation 1, verse number 10, this is how the Lord looks in glorified fashion to John, Revelation 1.10, the scripture says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard, that's a Sunday by the way, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. And then in verse 13 he says, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the son of man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand the seven stars. The Bible says, my friends, that we will all stand before Christ, this Christ, and give an account. That's the one that you will see. This is not like the the vision of Ezekiel, which was trying to express what does the presence of God look like? I mean, it was a marvelous thing if you, somebody's probably drawn this or painted this picture of what it looked like to Ezekiel. We don't have to have that kind of picture now because the picture is there in a man, in a man whose eyes are like a flame of fire, his feet and his robe and the golden sash and the hair like wool and the purity and the holiness of him, the exaltation. That's what the Lord looks like. He was exalted by God the Father. And then, furthermore, not only like physically exalted or in place, but also in name. Look at verse 9 again. And given him the name which is above every name. He is more than a household name, isn't he? He is the name above every household. He is the name, the name of Jesus. As God, this is his prerogative. He can elevate any name that he wishes. But it's not a new name that he exalted, but he assigns honor and power to his existing name. What is his name, by the way? Who is this person of whom we're speaking? If you go away from here and don't remember any other thing, remember Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Okay? Jesus, his human personal name. Uh, Christ, a title, a Messiah, that is anointed one. Of God. So his name is not Jesus, first name, Christ, last name. It's Jesus, Joshua, Jesus, and then uh, Christ, the Messiah, the one who is anointed by God. And then we also put another title in front of his name, usually, Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. So two titles and a personal name. But God gave him a name which is above every name. And, uh, well, let's see, Romans chapter 1 gives us a little indication about that. It says Romans 1, in Romans 1, 3, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and here it is, declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Here is the Son being declared to be in power by the resurrection from the the dead. He is, he is basically being called the coming king, the one who will take the throne of the earth. 
That's the name that he has, assigned honor and glory from God. He has obtained a more excellent name than the angels, Hebrews tells us. This is an important thing. Um, How is the reputation of your name? How is the reputation of your family name? We don't maybe concern ourselves with this as much as people in other cultures do. But there are other cultures that are very, very concerned about the value and reputation of their name, of their family name. You know, the honor-shame kind of culture where that focus is, you know, you've shamed our family name. Or if somebody, you know, from a family that doesn't believe in Christianity converts, then the pressure is tangible to them to, to not convert because they're going to uh, you know, degrade the name of their family by following Christ. The idea of the name in Scripture is a very important idea. It's an interesting study. We won't get into it much more this morning, but in Hebrew, it's Hashem, ha, the shame name, the name. And sometimes God would be referred to by Hebrews as that, the name. They won't say the name out of superstitious reverence sometimes for God, or maybe just plain reverence for God. But it's an important concept. The name of God represents everything that he is. It represents God himself. The name of Jesus represents everything he is, and because he was given a name which is above every name, it implies that he is worthy of worship. Okay, Just like, just like your name uh, has connected with it all that you are, you know, I just met somebody that has the same name as me this morning who's visiting. And he said, oh, I can remember that name, you know. But what does that name mean about that person or about me? Or what does your name mean about you? It really describes who you are. When somebody says, who are you talking about? And you say, oh, I'm talking about, you know, Isaac. And you're like, oh, yeah, I know who you're talking about. You know, you know about them. I'm talking about the name of Jesus. You know him? Do you know about him? you know he's worthy of worship? you know that he's been given a name which is above every name? Any name you can think of, any famous person, any famous politician, sports star, movie, whatever, his name is way above all of those names, way above all of those names. His name is above every name. And verse 10 says, here's the purpose of God doing this, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. And then he describes who he's talking about, those in heaven, those on earth, and those under the earth. Okay, well, that pretty much covers it, right? Is those up there, those here, or those down there? There's no other place in between those three places. That's it. He, should have, he could have just said everybody, and we should think of it like that, everybody, everybody. So why did, why did God exalt Jesus? Well, the first purpose is that he wants every knee to bow to him every knee to bow to him. Everyone will acknowledge that Jesus is their sovereign God, that he is in charge, that he is God the Son. The participants of this homage, or worship as it's called, will be everyone, whether in heaven, on earth, or under the earth. This refers to all the saved in heaven, all the good and bad angels, all of those living on the earth, 
all of the unsaved dead, all will bow to the name of Jesus. Not just Christians, my friends. Did you understand what I, what I meant when I said, what was, where's that statement in my notes? Everyone will acknowledge that Jesus is their sovereign God. You can grit your teeth. You can hate me all you want for saying that. It's not me that's saying it. It's the Bible that existed a long time before any of us did. But you know what? You are going to acknowledge the sovereign lordship of Jesus Christ. You, you might sit there and say, no, I'm not. You will. You won't have any choice. And I, 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 don't, I don't want to be mean about it. I don't want to get kind of upset about it, but you're, it's either now or later, my friend. As we often say, better to recognize Christ now as Lord and bow to him now rather than come to that conclusion after it's too late. There's no unloving thing about that, by the way, because it's, the only thing that's unloving is telling somebody a lie. Now, if you tell them the truth, that he is Lord and you have to deal with that, that's loving to tell somebody the truth. I can't hide that truth from you. The world wants to hide that truth from you. They want you to see all the names on the marquees, you know, and all the names in the news, and, and think about those are the biggest names in the world. Not even close. The second and related purpose of God lifting up Jesus is that every tongue would confess. So not only will you recognize internally, maybe through gritted teeth, but you will confess it openly, outwardly, that Jesus is Lord. God has highly exalted him and given him that name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow, and then I skip to verse 11, and that every tongue would confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's a plain fact that Christ is Lord. It's not an easily accepted fact for non-Christians. For the Christian, it's the truth. It's the essence of Christianity. It's what the Christian confesses by the power of the Holy Spirit. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12 says. Romans 10 says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. So if you want to be saved from your sin, that's all that God requires. You acknowledge Jesus as Lord, believe that God raised him from the dead. You understand, therefore, that Jesus died for your sins, that you don't have to die for your sins eternally, that he paid for your sins, that he loved you and gave himself for you. Okay, You know that. You can trust in him, and he will save you from your sins. The Christian has become convinced that Jesus is Lord, and that everything is under his control and authority and power. So not only do people bow, literally, to the sovereign Lord, but they're going to have to speak something to that effect, either now or later. Maybe, you know, really graveling to you, but it will be your portion. You won't have any choice. It's like, oh, so that's what I was denying all my life. Yeah. That's right. Now, we can hardly avoid here speaking about the controversy over the lordship of Christ. 
I have a somewhat extended section of my notes on it. I'll try to compress it down here so that it's not too hard to understand. But all this came to a, a head in the 1980s by a book that was written by John MacArthur called The Gospel According to Jesus. How there could be a controversy over the Lordship of Christ boggles my mind because, as I said, the plain fact of the matter is he is Lord. But it did come up, a division erupted in the evangelical and fundamental circles as to what the gospel entails. I don't want to simplify it too much, but I'll summarize it this way. Lordship salvation says that Jesus must be received as Savior and Lord. Non-lordship salvation says that Jesus must be received as Savior and then potentially later optionally as Lord. You see the difference? When you come to faith, the lordship view is saying you're believing in Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior, which to me seems coordinate with what I just spoke about in Romans 10, 9, and 10 and 1 Corinthians 12, 3. The non-lordship view says, no, you're receiving him simply as Savior. Just believe that he's the Savior, and then maybe later on as you become more mature, you will receive him as Lord and begin to live that way. So the non-lordship teachers accuse lordship folks of adding a work to faith. What is that work? Well, you've got to submit to the Lord. You've got to, uh, you know, change your life and and all of that so that faith has a submission aspect to it. Non-lordship teachers believe that is a work which cannot be done until after somebody's saved. The lordship view, on the other hand, hurls back the accusation that the non-lordship view is cheap grace, easy believism. In the lordship view, faith is the only condition of salvation. Okay, That's plain and clear in their teaching, in that, in that faction, if you will. And it's submissive in principle though not perfectly in practice until Christian growth occurs. So let me just, you, you probably are wondering, well, where does this pastor stand? Where does this church land? Well, we land squarely on the lordship side of the equation. We do not believe that receiving Christ as Lord is a work at all. We can do no works to please God. All we're doing is acknowledging who Jesus already is, and always has been. And the fact that he's Lord means that when I come to faith, when, if I'm coming to Jesus, see, when I come to Christ, I am not coming as just somebody who adds him to my belief system. Like, I got all this other stuff and everything, and yeah, I believe that he also is a, a savior and that he died for people's sins, and that's good, and I receive that. That is not true Christianity. That is adding information to your brain. But we're talking about the response of the whole person to the whole Christ, to his person and his work. Not just his work, not just that he's Savior, but that his person is that he's Lord. And so when you become a Christian, what you're really doing is, you see, let me, let me pause. I could ask you, I could say, look, would you, pl- would you become a Christian? Are you a Christian yet? Uh, to become a Christian, you need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Another whole way of saying the same exact thing is you need to become a follower of Christ. 
You need to acknowledge Him as Lord and Savior. You need to believe in Him. You need to believe that God raised Him from the dead. But you need to become a follower of Him. So if you say, well, I believe in Jesus, but I'm not a follower, you don't really believe in Jesus. True Christians are followers of Christ. They have switched their loyalty from themselves and the world to Christ Jesus. My loyalty is to Him because He's got the name which is above every name. At His name, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. So my loyalty has transferred from myself and my own things and uh, the world and so on uh, to Him. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm under His Lordship. So a real believer will acknowledge the Lordship of Christ even if he or she is not perfectly aligned with that truth in every practical department of his life. How how many of us can say, yep, I've got it down pat. I'm following the Lord perfectly in every department of my life. We're talking about our, with you just about that very issue. You don't go from, you know, a reprobate to a perfect little angel in one second. It takes a long time to get to the angel status, okay? We actually never reach the angel status because we're humans, right? We go to heaven as humans, as, as glorified humans, but we grow and we become more and more in tune with Jesus Christ as Lord. In reality, there is nothing but lordship salvation because there's only one way to be saved and that's through the lord jesus christ now what's the ultimate outcome of all this all this exaltation of christ it talks about what god has done verse 9 and the purposes for which he's done it that every knee would bow every tongue would confess here's the end of the whole matter to the glory of god the Father. The exaltation and confession of Christ has one primary outcome, to honor God. God will be glorified. God will be honored and His status will be enhanced by the recognition of His Son. Honoring Jesus openly as sovereign Lord will bring honor to God. And remember, this is what we started the message out with in John five twenty-three. That is, if he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So if you want to honor the Father, you know, like the verse says in, uh, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter uh, 10, 31, isn't it? Uh, whatever you do, it's not, is it 10, 31? Yeah, I think it is. I don't know, check, check me out on that. I'm having a, a lapse of the brain right now. Yeah, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. You say, how do I do that? Well, you honor Christ in it. So if, you, if you're sitting down to eat or you're getting up to play or you're going to work or you're going to school and you ask yourself, how am I going to honor God in this? Well, ask yourself the more specific question, am I honoring Christ in what I'm doing? Is my speech honoring to Christ? Is my attitude honoring to Christ? Am I lifting him up to the place where he deserves? If I don't honor the Son, I don't honor the Father. Don't kid yourself. So, we, uh, we humbly receive Christ as sovereign Lord, we confess Him as such, and we echo that honor of God every time we speak and sing of Christ as Lord and every time we live in accordance with that truth. Finally, in following Jesus' example of humility, 
we can expect that God will be pleased and we will receive an appropriate reward from him. Remember, those who humble themselves will be exalted. Remembering that will help us even when we feel that the humbling is beyond what is right. Lower than the lowest that we should go. Jesus suffered great injustice. There's no other way to to describe it. He was killed because he was Jesus. He was killed because of his personal identity. Everybody's all up in arms today about identity, aren't they? Jesus died because of who he was, not because of what he did. He didn't do anything worthy of death, anything worthy of imprisonment or punishment or rebuke or correction or anything. He was the perfect lamb of God. But he endured great injustice, and as a result of enduring that great injustice, God has given him an even greater exaltation. And so it's Jesus Christ, my friends, whom we worship. We exalt him, we lift him up, because the Bible tells us that's what we're to do, and not only that, we love to do it. We love to bring his name before you, and I trust you to your own heart and mind, and you to others, and your family, and among your acquaintance to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's do that this Christmas season because he deserves it. Because of his great suffering, he receives great glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how grateful we are that we could be able to extol the name of Jesus today just to talk about him, our Savior, our Lord, our God, the one whom we worship along with you in the Spirit. And Father, we pray that in each person's life here, or those that are listening online, watching this morning, that Christ will be exalted and that he will be honored. Thank you, Father, in advance for your work. Take this word and multiply its effect and cause growth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we close him, 218 this morning. 218, indeed, he did leave his throne.
just pause for a moment and ask yourself how God has worked in your heart through this message today. Um, Our heart's desire is that you would know the Lord Jesus Christ, each and every person here. I don't know everybody here. I know most of you here because you're part of the regular flock that I am under shepherd of, but some not. And so I'm burdened this morning to just call to you to invite you to come to faith in Christ. We've talked about it the whole service today. You've heard it sung. You've just sang about his leaving his throne and going to the cross for you. But he's coming back, and he is inviting. He's tenderly calling, tenderly inviting you to come. (laughs) Amen. Those of you that are wearied and burdened and heavy laden, He will give you rest if you come to him. Bring your sins to him, to the foot of his cross, and say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I've really blown it, but I know I've heard that you will take a person like me if I believe in you, confess my sins, and trust in you as Lord and Savior. You'll take me and take me in, promise heaven to me, remake me from the inside out, help me to be a kind of person you want me to be. He will do that. He will do that. He has not yet thrown out one person from that place at the foot of the cross, has he? Never. So you come and you ask him to do that. Just where you're, where you're at in your seat, in your heart, just pray that or afterwards today, think about that and uh, be sure that you know Christ. And when you do that, We'd be delighted if you would tell us, let us come alongside and be uh, new friends, uh, new family, and help you walk in the faith, because that's just the beginning. You'll find out that when you become a follower of Christ, uh, the road isn't all roses. It's not all easy and peachy and all of that. There are some difficulties along the way, but uh, you can be helped by your fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord. Father, I pray your blessing on these ones today. Watch over them, work in each according to their need, by your Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you and keep you. Have a good afternoon.